you brought your own, open up. And this morning, our Old Testament reading has actually changed from what it was going to be. And we're going to open up at page one by request of John Dixon to Genesis 1, verse 1. And then we're going to flip over to Romans. So, go about there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now if you flip with me over to Romans chapter 8, let me just find the page and I'll tell you what number it is, page 1133. We're reading from chapter 8, verses 11 to 23. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. I'm utterly ashamed of it. I'm ashamed that the name of Christ has ever been associated with a bomb or an AK-47. The history of the West has been mostly Christian, and that history is mixed. Here is where the Crusades began. Salvation for taking up the sword. The Crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women, and children. There are plenty of circumstances for 
Christians as need for Muslims. Religion is a really good banner to march under. This was where Adolf Hitler proclaimed his vision for the Third Reich. And what was the Christian church doing in response to the unfolding madness? Should Christianity be understood as oppressive for women or as liberating? The Hammer of She-Witches was a bestseller for about 200 years. This is one of the most beautiful places in Hawaii. It's also a natural prison. Diseases, land grabs and outright massacres led to the annihilation of entire communities. To lose the land was a tragedy. Even though we aspire to this idea of living in God's image, we often fail palpably. What does it look like when the church exists for others? There's no denying that Christians have sometimes played completely out of tune, but they've also played it beautifully and with lasting effect. Join us as we travel the globe and back through history to uncover the truth. The church is better and worse than you ever imagined. Well, I wanted to uh, start my talk with that clip, uh, not just as a shameless, shameless plug uh, for the documentary that is out now in cinemas and on your tellies by Christmas, uh, but because I, I want to say some pretty positive things about the Christian church today. And yet, I don't want to give you the impression I reckon the church has only done good through history. I've just spent three years working on a documentary subtitled How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. I am more than ever aware that the so-called Holy Catholic Church, as the Creed puts it, has sometimes been very far from holy. And the communion of saints has sometimes behaved like a band of sinners, worse. Knowing the ideal that Christ intended for the Christian community, the church, actually puts a disappointing spin on the reality. So I do want to talk today about the community that God has established and eternity, but I want to begin with uh, a word or two about the even weirder topic of the Trinity. Uh, the third stanza of this Apostles' Creed, this 83 words all Christians agree on, the opening words of that third stanza are, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's fine, but it clearly sets the third stanza in parallel with the first and second stanzas, I believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ the only Son, then I believe in the Holy Spirit. This makes clear that the Holy Spirit is not just an item in a theological checklist. The idea behind the creed is the biblical idea that God is three persons. The one God in three persons. This is the idea of the Trinity. The Spirit is God no less than the Father and the Son. And I am painfully aware of how bizarre that is to ears who haven't thought about this. Is God three or is God one? And Christians have the temerity to say, yes, yes. Uh, I heard a podcast just the other day, one of my favorite podcasts uh, called In Our Time. Uh, Melvin Bragg, a really great uh, BBC broadcaster and atheist, described the Trinity as that muddle Christians got themselves into. 
Sometimes I feel that. Uh, our Muslim neighbors go even further, and the Quran explicitly says that belief in the Trinity is a blasphemy. They do blaspheme who speak such things. I accept that the doctrine of the Trinity poses a mathematical problem. Three, one, three, one. At the same time, it answers a profound philosophical and, in the end, personal question. The question is this. How can God be eternally and essentially love if there was no other, no beloved in eternity to love or be loved by? Was God only potentially love until 200,000 years ago when he created Homo sapiens to receive and return his love? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity answers this question and says, God is eternally and essentially love because God is eternally and essentially three persons in perfect communion. Triunity. Trinity. Yes, I sometimes wish the mathematics of God were a little more straightforward. But I would sacrifice mathematics for love any day of the week. The Trinity tells me that God is eternally and essentially a communion of persons in love. And this idea of a divine communion grounds the emphasis, if not obsession, of Christianity on human community. Divine communion gives birth to human community, which is the second thing I want to talk about. We read in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then it says, as part of the Spirit's work, the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. The way the Creed works is the first stanza was all about God the Father creating the world, the second stanza is all about God the Son dying and rising again for our amnesty with God. And this third creed is all about the Spirit's work. It's all about the Spirit's work, animating life now and into eternity. So what is the Spirit's main work now, according to the Apostles' Creed? Well, it's to take ordinary people and fashion them somehow, miraculously, into a community, into divine communion and love, what the creed calls the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, which I know are weird statements. <laughs> Let me just say a word or two about them. Holy Catholic Church has nothing to do with Roman Catholics. I'm not just making this up. If we asked our Catholic priest neighbor to come and talk about the Apostles' Creed, they was, he would say, absolutely, this is not saying the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Catholic is just the Greek katholos, meaning, uh, according to the whole, literally, it just means universal. Universal. It's just a holy universal church. In fact, we know that the word Catholic was added to the creed precisely to distinguish between the church based in Rome, which was the biggest hitter, and the universal or Catholic church. It was deliberately trying to include the churches of Jerusalem and Ephesus and, of course, Rome as well. That's the Holy Catholic Church. Communion of the Saints uh, just refers to the 
community, communion of Christians. The word Christian only appears twice in the whole Bible, but saints is the normal word for a Christian. I know we've come to use it only for like superhero Christians. That's not how it's used in the Apostles' Creed or in uh, the Bible itself. This is just the normal word for the fellowship or communion or camaraderie of Christians. And the point is pretty clear, I hope. The Spirit's role now is to take ordinary people of different kinds from everywhere and somehow fashion them into a communion, a community that somehow reflects the communion of God. I can't deny that the church hasn't lived up to this. And some of you will be sitting there and you bear the wounds of Christian bad behavior. I reckon every genuine Christian in this building would want to join me in saying, we are sorry that we have fallen so far from the ideal. But when this creed was composed in the century immediately following Jesus, the church was, by the power of the Spirit, breathing the life of community into a Roman world that was suffocating under the weight of its hierarchy and inequality and violence. In the Roman world, this is not an exaggeration, the church transformed antiquity to give us modernity. And you don't have to just believe me, you'd sort of think, oh, of course you're going to say that. Here is one of the world's leading authorities on Greek and Roman ethics. Teresa Morgan's professor of uh, Greco-Roman history at uh, the University of Oxford Classics faculty. Here's what she says about the transformation ancient Christianity brought to our world. I think that insistence by Christianity that God is always loving and always trustworthy and always just and because of that, Christians are called always to practice those same goods towards God and always to practice those same goods to one another. That is a very big change in thinking from the ethics of the Greek and Roman world where the gods may be just but may not, where the gods may love human beings but may not, where being merciful you know, might be the right thing on a certain day but might not, where loving your neighbour you know, might serve you but might not. The Christian insistence that if those things are good, they are good for everybody and they are always good. I think that was transformational for the Roman world and then for the Christian world and is perhaps the single greatest contribution of Christianity to public life. Is it the same today? I'm almost embarrassed to quote to you Dr. Andrew Lee. Uh, one of the most famous students of Robert Putnam, the great Harvard professor, leader in the study of social capital. Andrew Lee came back, worked at the Australian National University where he brought together all the data on religion's contribution to Australian life. Now the thing is, in his book, Disconnected, he makes perfectly clear he's an atheist. In fact, it's almost funny, he bends over backwards saying, I'm a fan of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. I don't know why you would say that in an academic volume, but he does. And then he says, and yet, 
the data is overwhelming. I'm almost embarrassed to read this, but I will read it. Among churchgoers, 25% also participated in a community service or civic association over the same period. By contrast, among non-churchgoers, just 12% participated in a community or civic association. Regular churchgoers are 16 percentage points more likely to have been involved in a voluntary activity and 22 percentage points more likely to have helped the needy. Churchgoers are more likely to build friendships with people from different social classes. Those who attend church regularly are more likely to say that they can count among their friends a business owner, a manual worker, a welfare recipient. Few other institutions in America or Australia are as effective in fostering this bridging social capital between rich and poor. Christians might not be much on their own, but something happens when ordinary people get together and God's Spirit breathes somehow, I don't know how, to make them greater than the sum of their parts. And part of the reason for this, at least in theory, is the next line of the Apostles' Creed, which adds, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And you might think, hang on, that probably belongs better if I, you know, we're going to rewrite the Apostles' Creed in the second stanza. Because the second stanza is all about Jesus dying and rising for our amnesty with God. So surely forgiveness fits in there. Yeah, sort of. But I think it's fantastic right here, bunched up against the community thing. Because let's think about this for a second. What better basis for genuine human community across all kinds of human beings could there be than forgiveness of sins? Think through the logic. Most human communities, maybe with the exception of family, are based on activities that members can be better or worse at, yeah, and therefore kind of ranked. School communities, sport, chess club, surf club. I've heard that the famous swimming club down here ranks everyone, like from one to, you know, 3,000. Bruce Clark, I think, you know, right up there in the hundreds. Tens? Anyway, ranking. Now, that's fine. That's fun. But the thing I want to say is that the, the basis of Christian community is this idea of forgiveness of sins, which is the heart of the Christian message. And, and the thing that sort of brought me over to consider Christianity for the first time, I told you a couple of weeks ago that my entree to the Christian faith was through my scripture teacher at Mossman High School, Glenda. And I told you how she just, you know, showed such love and compassion and hospitality to me. But I remember one day after scripture class, when I was getting a little bit interested in what she was saying, I went up to her and I said, I'm not saying God's real, but if he is, what do you think he thinks of me? I now realize that's a really stupid question to ask a smart Christian. She said, I'll never forget this. She said, John, God sees everything you've done, said and thought. And she left a very awkward pause. <laughs> I remember thinking, they're standing in the stairwell at Mossman High School. Oh man, that's not good. <laughs> and then she followed it up by saying, and he loves you even still. 
He sees everything you've done, said, and thought, and he loves you even still. I remember thanking her, running down the stairwell, and going out to the playground, trying to forget those words, but they went round and around my head. In one line, she taught me the doctrine of forgiveness of sins, the very heart of the Christian faith, but not just the heart of the Christian gospel, the foundation of Christian community. Because, frankly, if we're all sinners, no one gets to look down on anyone else. And if we're all freely forgiven, no one has bragging rights. Right? We're all sinners. No way can you look down on others. I know the church has a reputation for doing that, but we're all freely forgiven. It's got nothing to do with our good works. So there's no bragging rights anywhere. I'm suggesting that that is a profound basis for human community, for all kinds of people, weird and wonderful, in communion. And this thought is put beautifully by Francis Spufford, that British intellectual atheist who recently accidentally became a Christian. I quoted from one part of his book um, on week one, I think it was, but um, he describes in this book called Unapologetic about his sort of conversion experience, he describes how one of the things that caused him to lose faith in his um, intellectual secular set in England was how judgmental they all were especially toward conservatives and Christians. He, he, he just found himself swept up in this kind of looking down on the conservative, you know, and the Christian. And then it dawned on him how blooming judgmental he was. And then it dawned on him through a whole series of different things that actually a true basis for removing judgment and establishing community was this fuddy-duddy doctrine of sin and forgiveness that the Christians go on about. It was just one of the little steps he made toward the Christian faith. And here's how he describes it in the book. He teaches writing at university, so you can get a sense of the panache of his explanation. So of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people. Shiny, happy, squeaky clean. And excluding the bad people. Frightening, alien, repulsive. For the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Not that can be securely designated as such. Christianity can't be about circling the wagons of virtue out in the suburbs and keeping the unruly inner city at bay. This, I realize, goes flat contrary to the present predominant image of it as something existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. There are Christians like that. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things or in the same way, but enough for us to recognize each other. I might have preferred, he said, league of the forgiven, but it's the same idea. Trinity. Community. Thirdly, finally, and more briefly, eternity. I believe in the resurrection of the body, it says, and the life everlasting. According to Genesis 1, uh, read to us earlier, the Spirit of God was right there at the beginning, breathing life into creation. It's put like this. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. In ancient Hebrew and Greek, spirit and breath are precisely the same word. So the idea here, clear in the original language, is God breathes creation into existence. Now, here's the thing. Our New Testament reading says God's Spirit will do the same thing after death. Romans 8 says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. The Spirit's role now is to fit ordinary people into a community. The Spirit's role then is to breathe life where there is death. As the Creed puts it, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I don't mind admitting that I'm probably a little more death conscious than the average happy Mossman boy. Maybe because I seem to have lost a lot of close people when I was young really suddenly. I was chatting with someone here a couple of weeks ago who was a mutual friend of one of my dearest buddies growing up, who I spent countless days with, and who died in a helicopter accident too young. But then I lost um, one of my best buddies, Simon, in a motorcycle accident outside the Orpheum in Mossman, 16. I lost Robbie in the maths classroom, at school, right in front of us all. And I'd just been camping with him the week before. And I know I told you, week one, I lost my dad in a plane crash when I was nine. So, I'm willing to admit, I'm a little weird. I just do think about death a bit. Especially when I fly, which seems to be just about every week at the moment. But, maybe I think about death too much, I reckon it's much weirder to try and avoid thinking about death altogether, which is what Aussie secular culture does. It it is truly strange the lengths we go to to avoid thinking about, talking about, what still remains, according to the best research, one of the most certain things about our existence. Uh, I've led many funerals as a, as a minister, and it still amazes me how awkward people are. I, I don't mean scared, or I don't mean sad, of course, of course. I mean awkward about death, about talking about it. It's maybe not healthy to be overly conscious of death, but I reckon it's illogical and tragicomical, not to think deeply 
about death and the possibility of life beyond death. One of the great privileges of my Christian ministry was meeting this man, James Garbett, magistrate of the New South Wales Court, turned up at my little church in Roseville, one eight o'clock service, and just completely out of the blue, and I was leading the service that day, so I went and introduced myself to him afterwards, and he just told me on the spot he'd received a very bad cancer diagnosis. He was feeling pretty well, but the doctors told him it was not good. And he wanted to talk about Christianity. Now, I know uh, it's really easy to be cynical about that sort of thing. In fact, one of the first things he said to me was, it's easy to be cynical about this, but let me tell you. Like, oh, I'm a minister, I'm not cynical about it. But he said, let me tell you. There's nothing like thinking you might die pretty soon to bring clarity to your life about what's important. And he said, I've come to the point where I think, my family, and if God's real, I want to know. That's it. It isn't my long legal career. It's those two things. And so began the beautiful times I got to spend with James, going and having afternoon cups of tea with him, and at first it was entirely intellectual. He just wanted to talk the intellectual stuff. And, and, and one of the reasons we hit it off at the intellectual level was he, he sort of um, pointed out how similar legal judgment is with historical judgment. Because it's based principally on testimony, on the analysis of testimony. Is it good testimony? Is it bad testimony? And he said to me one day, it amazes me the life-changing decisions I've made for people, for others, based on testimony. Based on sitting in the court and making judgments as I sit there listening to testimony and then I get to decide what happens to their life. And he sort of flipped it and said, I need to make a judgment about my own life based on the testimony of the Gospels. He loved talking history and asked every question you might imagine a legal mind would throw. And he came to the point, I kid you not, where he thought the Gospels and especially the resurrection narratives have all the hallmarks of genuine testimony. He didn't have a kind of Damascus Road, the angels singing or anything like that. He, he, he had remaining doubts for sure, but he got to the point where he thought the resurrection is not made up. The data is too early. It's too widespread. It has the character of sincerity. And he flipped from merely intellectual interest in Christianity to a genuine trust that if there was any hope of life beyond the grave, it was because of Jesus Christ. I saw him just a few days before he died. Now he's in hospital and in a morphine stupor and I walked into the room and I just said, James, it's John. Do you want me to pray? And he shot his hand up through the sheet and grabbed hold of my hand really tightly. And I prayed. I don't know what I prayed, something probably pathetic. But when I got to the Amen, he was back asleep. 
and three days later, he was more alive than any of us. I believe it. I believe he trusted the resurrection of Jesus and the Spirit breathed eternity into him. I was asked to lead his funeral, which was quite something. The church was packed with the legal fraternity of Sydney. And uh, senior lawyers uh, got up, uh, I think there were five eulogies, just top tip, five eulogies is too many. <laughs> and every one of them, including, including the letters they had read out from the law council and all sorts of things about James Garber, every one of them said words to the effect of, this is a man of impeccable judgment. That was a phrase, impeccable judgment which basically gave my sermon. So I got up and I said, well, you've told us what a man of impeccable judgment James Garbutt was. Let me tell you about one of the final judgments he ever made about the Gospels and about the resurrection. He judged that Jesus really rose again, not in la-la land, not in Middle Earth, but in Middle Eastern history. And though he died with all sorts of questions and confusions, he believed in Christ's resurrection. He believed he was entering eternity. Such a privilege. Christians have disagreed on a lot of stuff over the years. I'm sorry. But they've all agreed on this. 83 words summarizing the reality of God, the source of all creation, who has given life and breath as a gift. And the history of Jesus, especially his death and his resurrection for our amnesty with God, and the life of the Spirit. Somehow animating community now, and eternity then. That's the Christian faith. I've been doing this long enough to know that there's a massive range of responses to all of this. Right from, you know, complete rejection through to sort of instant embrace. I've seen it all. But there are two responses that I've always found really intriguing. One is the person who won't take any step toward the Christian faith until they've had every question answered. Cross every T, dot every I, I'm not taking any step. Right? And then there's a, so almost the opposite. There are those who have taken pretty much every step in, except the last one. I have this mate called Graham. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you this. We were out for coffee and, and he is an intellectual, he's a statistician actually, and um, he was quizzing me about the Christian faith and we, we've been doing this a lot, he, he's asked a lot of questions. And I eventually said to him, Graham, you're sort of at the point where you won't take any step toward Christianity, you won't pray, you won't turn up at church, you won't open a Bible, you won't do anything until you've had every question answered. And he said, yeah, 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 I'm a statistician, this is what we do. And I said, well, can you imagine applying that to a relationship? And he went, oh yeah, I've done that. 
In a relationship, you don't, you know, get every particular angle on a human being before you take any step toward them. What do you do in a relationship? You take a little step of openness and see what comes back. And if it's positive, you take another little step and see what comes back. That's, that's, a, that's how you deal with it. Christianity is more like a relationship than a mathematical formula. And I would just like to say to some of you, just take little steps in the right direction. Don't go for the giant leap of faith. I don't believe in leaps of faith. But take little steps based on what you think might be true. Little steps in the right direction. But then there's the person who's taken every step except the last one. Like this woman I met in Bath in the UK who was dragged along, well, hardly dragged along, she was quite keen to be there with a Christian friend. She herself was not a Christian, but a Christian friend brought her to this event I was speaking at. And afterwards, she came down the front, she talked to me about the Christian faith. And it turns out she'd been, she's like a, a groupie for Christian events. Like, she, she turns up at Christian event after Christian event for years. And, and I was talking to her, but she wasn't a Christian. She, she was just really intrigued, and she half believed everything. I don't know if this was appropriate or polite, but I, I thought, I've got to ask her something. After maybe half an hour of conversation, I said, you seem to have been circling Christianity for a long while. Do you have a good reason not to land? Bless her with such honesty. She said, I have practical reasons none of them very good. Now, I wish I could say, and then we prayed and she became a Christian. I can't. For all I know, she's still traveling the UK, attending Christian events, circling, never landing. And so, let me close by just saying, perhaps you need more questions answered. Fine, take little steps in the right direction. But perhaps you're at the other end and you've taken pretty much every step except you've never got to the point where you said, you know what, I think I might believe this stuff. I want to depend on it now. If you're in the first category, by all means, please come to the Life of Jesus course starting Wednesday. I think we're allowed to have more people. Take that little step. But maybe if you're in the other category today, you know, you want to say to God, I think you're real. I think you offer me forgiveness. Please. So let me close in prayer. This is a prayer I especially hope those who want to land might feel like praying. Dear God, I acknowledge you as my creator. You give every life and breath. But I have not treated you as you deserve. I have been distracted In many real ways, I have offended you, my Creator. 
Yet, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death and resurrection on my behalf. Because of him, please, forgive me now. And grant me your Holy Spirit. Fit me out with love for community. And grant me eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.